And uh, glad to be with you today. If you don't know me, my name is Josh, and uh, one of the pastors here at Wawasee Bible. Um, one announcement, I don't, maybe Dan mentioned it, if not, I just want to make sure, because they told me to say it, so I want to make sure it gets said. But ladies, women's Bible study begins again tomorrow morning, and I uh, wanted to remind you of that, 9 a.m. Uh, here at the church, and in the fellowship hall, so if you want to be a part of that, uh, I encourage you to come and join the women tomorrow morning. It's canceled. I was going to say, okay, canceled. Thanks, Beck. Hey, if I say anything else wrong, correct me, will you? All right, thank you. I appreciate it. No, thanks. I misunderstood you earlier. All right, so ignore all of that. Let's start over. Hi, I'm Josh. Well, hey, we are back into a series that we began uh, two years ago, actually. In January of 2014, and we spent a year, we started studying the life and ministry of Jesus through all four Gospels at the same time. And we made it all the way up through the Sermon on the Mount at last Christmas, and Christmas of 2014. And we took 2015 off, and in 2016, we're coming back, and we're picking up where we left off in Jesus' life and ministry right after the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus' life and ministry is interesting. We've talked about this, but just as a reminder, or maybe some of you, if you weren't here for that, in in Jesus' life and ministry, we have a very small part of his life that's written about, and honestly, a a pretty small part of his ministry that's written about, that we have much written about at all. He, He spends the first 30 years of his life simply preparing for ministry. Somebody, I I read a story, somebody asked Billy Graham one time, a guy who was in seminary, he said, how long do you suppose I should prepare before I go in to be a pastor? And he says, well, it took Jesus 30 years. So you can decide after that if you're ready. (laughs) And Jesus was spending all this time preparing. He worked uh, likely as a carpenter because his earthly father, Joseph, swung a hammer for a living. And... uh, So Jesus likely followed in his footsteps as a carpenter. He grew up in a small town called Nazareth uh, of a few hundred people, a very rural farming community. And then after about those 30 years, Jesus uh, begins to accept his call by the Father into ministry. And it begins with his baptism by John the Baptist. And after that, he spends, I would argue, about a year and a half, maybe even two years but at least I think 18 months, um, simply gathering followers. And he hadn't yet called his disciples to really be his disciples yet, the 12, but he did know them and he did walk alongside them and he did do life together with them and even do some ministry with them. And it was later then when he walks alongside, you know, and says, Hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Then he calls them into ministry with him. And his initial call during that first year and a half to two years is, is, hey, come and see. Come check it out. Come see what's going on. Come see who I am. Come see what it's about. Jesus' ministry was attractional. It attracted people to him. Now, as a church, our ministry in some way, shape, or form would hopefully be attractional in the sense that it would attract people to the gospel, like Jesus' ministry did. And in the same way, though, Jesus' ministry was missional because his next call was not just come and see. It was follow me, follow me. Don't just come now, follow me. And now not just follow me, but follow me. We're going to see and fish for men. Go out and fish for men. Go out and be missional, not just attractional, but also missional. Coming and going, 
We're going to catch our fish as best we can in whatever direction they're swimming. And, and that's where we're kind of at in the timeline of Jesus' ministry. He's just finished his Sermon on the Mount. And we're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. Let me read through the text for this morning. There's a parallel passage that we may get into a little bit this morning that tells the same story in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Uh, but today we're in Luke chapter 7. Let's read together. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And to one I say, I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him, and thanks for your word. Thanks for Jesus' life and ministry. I pray you'd help us as a church to emulate the strategy he used to make disciples. That uh, we would be attractional and missional that uh, we would emulate Jesus in our personal lives in every way that we can, that uh, people would come to know your son. And Holy Spirit, I I thank you uh, that you fill me and work through me. I pray today that you would again. And I pray against the enemy of servants, their works and effects, that he would take your word and twist it or uh, cause us to, um, to not gain what you would have for us and accuse us. But instead... Holy Spirit, might you reign in our hearts and change us by the power of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the message today is The Man Who Wowed Jesus. The Man Who Wowed Jesus. Do you know, in this passage, it's the only time anybody wowed Jesus. It's the only time anybody wowed him in a good way. Let me say it that way. In fact, the, the text there at the end of our, our passage in chapter 7, uh, verse 9, it said, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now stop there for a moment. The word marvel, the, the Greek word for marvel, it means to be amazed. It means to be amazed. Jesus was amazed at this guy. He was wowed by him. You ever thought about that when you've read this passage in the past? How could Jesus be amazed? How could Jesus be wowed by someone? I mean, he's God. He's 100% fully God. There aren't any surprises if you're God. God's omniscient. I cannot talk. He's all-knowing. I just want to try to say the word because I'm going to butcher it. He's all-knowing. 
How are there any surprises for God? You know, from the beginning to the end and all the elements in between, if you're God, what is there that's to amaze you? So what is it that made Jesus marvel or wonder or be astonished or astounded? It's really startling to think about that. And and here we see a wonderful glimpse, though, of Jesus' humanity, because in his humanity, he is amazed and astounded and he marveled at this man. He was wowed by him. He met a man who amazed him. That's to say he saw something unexpectedly wonderful. And as I said, he's the only guy in scripture that is written about anyway, that Jesus encountered and was amazed by. There were others he was amazed by, but it was always at their lack of faith. In fact, Mark 6, 6 says he was amazed at the unbelief of the people that they could see his miracles and they could hear his words and still not believe. But this guy amazed Jesus for all the right reasons, for all the right reasons. So it makes me ask the question, what was it about him that amazed Jesus? And the answer is right there in the text, but let's work through it again together and discover what it was that amazed Jesus by this man. Let's start again in verse one. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. After he finished all his sayings, well, I I told you where this is happening, right? This is right after the Sermon on the Mount. So what Luke is saying is right after Jesus finished his sermon, he walked, and it's really not a mountain, it's more of a big hill. He walked down the hill, and that hill, by the way, is really close to Capernaum. I've been there. And it's just a short walk. You can walk right into town. And Jesus comes down the hill, he walks into town, and Luke is telling us this is right after Jesus had preached those things. Now, Matthew expounds on the Sermon on the Mount more than Luke does. Luke mentions a little bit of it in chapter 6. He kind of gives a summary. But Matthew spends chapters 5, 6, and 7 of his gospel telling even more of what Jesus taught there. But Luke kind of summed it up. And if if you wanted to maybe uh, give a brief summary, even of Luke's summary, you might say it like this, that uh, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount told us what a true disciple should look like and how they ought to live. What somebody who's really following Jesus, what a fully devoted follower would look like and how they would live. And so Jesus had just said that, he had just taught that, and now he comes down into Capernaum. And essentially what we're going to find out is that Luke is saying, first he taught it and now he sees it. First he described this guy or that, you know, that, that ultimate follower and then he, he meets him. In person, and he's amazed by him. Well, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum is a small town, um, but big for that day. It was Jesus' home base. It was, in fact, it, w- it was the biggest of the the small towns, or if you want to call them cities, around the Lake of Galilee. It was on the northwest corner of Galilee, and that's where Jesus enters. And Jesus had made this his home base. He grew up in Nazareth, but once he once he started his ministry. He kind of moved away from home. And and Capernaum, why did he choose Capernaum to be his home base? Well, I think for a few reasons. One, it was far enough away from Nazareth to escape uh, the ridicule and the opposition of some of the Pharisees. It it was there. It was also on a major trade route. Capernaum was on a major trade route through that region. And so it was an incredibly diverse city. There were people from all walks of life in the known world at that point there because they had come in. There were Romans there. There were people from the east, people from the south, people, all kinds of people in Capernaum. 
And this was strategic for Jesus' ministry because by reaching the people there, guess what? They're going to reach the people where they go back to. And that seemed to have been a strategy of not only Jesus, but Paul in the New Testament when he plants churches. He would always go into the cities and plant churches. Why would he do that? Why didn't he spend time planting churches in the small towns? Well, the, the reason was simply a strategic one. It's not that he didn't care about the small towns, but for the most part, all of his ministry for Paul was planting churches in cities because then it would trickle down into the surrounding communities. Uh, maybe an exception to that might be Colossians, Colossae, but for the most part, all the places Paul goes are large cities. And Jesus here picks a place for his home base in a city. You know, that's usually the same strategy for a lot of church planting today. And it's a major focus of the Evangelical Free Church is planting churches in cities. Now, we care about rural areas too, right? We care about us. They care about us. And we're doing God's work here. But you need to know that there's a movement of people moving to the cities. And one, if you want to read more about this, there's a quarterly publication. I don't know if you've maybe seen this out in the fellowship hall, just sitting on some of the coffee tables out there. But it's called EFCA Today. We're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, if you didn't know. That's kind of our loosely our denomination, more of a fellowship. Um, but this is just a publication where once a quarter, they, they publish it primarily for church leaders, but it really it's for anybody in the church. And they tackle some kind of topic of uh, Christian living or doctrine. And there's five, six, seven articles there. And there's a, a publication that comes out like this. And then the rest of it is online. And you can read it at efcatoday.org efcatoday.org. And so maybe you would check that out and begin to read those things. There's also this one, this most recent one, this winter one that just came out this month is on uh, ministry in the city. Well, they did one a few years ago on ministry in small towns. You might go read that since we're in small towns. But in any case, Jesus picked an urban center to be the home base for his ministry. I think the third reason, though, that he chose Capernaum is it was home to several of the disciples that he called And then it would provide more resources for him and support for his ministry. He'd have places to stay. He'd have people to support him financially and to give him a meal. And this was his home base in Capernaum. Now, as he comes down from the hill after the Sermon on the Mount, he walks into Capernaum. It says in verse 2, Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. A centurion. Do you know any centurions? Sounds like some weird comic book character, doesn't it? Or like some character on a video game, you can think, guys, maybe something, centurion, you got to kill all the centurions. It sounds like it. Here's what centurion is. It's actually, it might sound familiar to you, a centurion century. It, it was a Roman official, a Roman guard in the army, in the armed forces of the Roman government and in their empire that was in charge of about a hundred men. Sometimes more, sometimes less. But as a general rule, they ruled and were in charge of a hundred men. There were officers in the Roman army. Uh, all the centurions that are mentioned in the New Testament, for the most part, are mentioned in a pretty positive way. So these were career military men, the centurions were. They were some of the main officers. And what's curious is they seem to have been men of high character. For instance, in Matthew 8, 5, a centurion uh, This same centurion, excuse me, who lived at Capernaum, Matthew writes about him approaching Jesus. In Mark 15, 39, a centurion who witnessed the crucifixion identified Jesus. He says, that's the son of God. In Acts 10, the conversion of a centurion by the name of Cornelius ushers in ministry to the Gentiles. 
In Acts 27.3, there's a centurion named Julius who treated the apostle Paul with, with great courtesy while he was imprisoned. And there's a, just a generally favorable impression made by centurions who appear in the New Testament. He had a high position in the Roman government and in the army, one of respect and authority. But I'm telling you, Jesus didn't heal and grant this man's request because of his position. Jesus wasn't amazed at him because he was a high-ranking guy. You know what's curious? I don't know about you, but so many of us, and it wasn't any different in that day, but do you ever just strive to be a little bit higher on the ladder? A little higher on the totem pole so maybe people think a little bit more of you? You know it does nothing to change your place in the sight of God? I mean, he's, he's, he's pleased with you as you use your gifts and abilities to grow and mature and improve yourself and improve your family, but, but ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't impress him. And this didn't impress Jesus. This isn't why he was amazed with the centurion. It's, it was not due to his position. Number two, it was not due, here in the same verse, I would argue it's not due to his pedigree. Because the reality is many of the centurions, you know how they got into that position? Many of them, not all, but many of them were actually sons of high-ranking Roman senators or other Roman officials. And that's where they started out their career. And because dad was up here, I get to start here. Kind of like, you know, a CEO of a big corporation sends his son out to, to take over some small operation somewhere and work his way up. But he starts out a little higher maybe than anybody else started. And Sometimes centurions started that way. They were the sons or relatives of high-ranking Roman senators and officials. If that was the case with this guy, then it wasn't his pedigree that impressed Jesus. It wasn't like, hey, do you know who my dad is, Jesus? And Jesus would go, do you know who my dad is? (laughs) Well, thankfully, we're going to find out this guy actually did, I believe, know who Jesus' father was. But no, it's not due to his pedigree. Jesus isn't amazed by that. What's your pedigree? What's your background? What's your ethnicity? What's your story? Sadly, we live in a world that is incredibly messed up. And we wrongly think that because someone's born into this line or born into that, or I have this last name or this color skin, that somehow that makes me better or worse than whoever else. It's simply not true. In the sight of God, we're all equal. We're all on level playing field. We're all sinners in need of a savior, in need of God's grace. And we're all incredibly valued and honored by God because we all bear God's image. That's that's curious again why cities are so important in ministry, right? I mean, where else on the earth is there that high a concentration of God's image in one place? (laughs) But in highly populated cities or places like India when we go there. But again, it's not because of your pedigree that God's impressed with you or loves you. It's because you bear his image. And it wasn't due to this man's pedigree that Jesus was amazed with him. Let's keep reading verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. He sent elders of the Jews. Matthew, if you compare this passage, by the way, to Matthew's account, Matthew tells us, Matthew writes that the centurion himself went to Jesus. Now, some people, again, this is one of those things they go, oh, see, it's a contradiction. The Bible is not right. Luke says Jesus sent people. Matthew says the centurion went, or 
excuse me, Luke says the centurion sent people. Matthew says the centurion went to Jesus himself. Which is it? Well, they're both accurate. Matthew just kind of summarizes things and Luke is giving more detail. Because in that day, especially in Jewish culture, if you were sent by someone as an ambassador or as their messenger or as their servant, you went with that person's authority and you spoke for them. Right? I mean, it's not contradictory. The messenger is like the sender himself. Jesus is the prime example of that. He's sent by the Father, and he gives the message of the Father on behalf of the Father with the authority of the Father. So, so when the centurion, who think about it, he's a Roman official. He's used to just sending people to do his business all the time. You go do this. You come here and do this. You take over there and do that. And so it would have been just natural for him. Hey, you, go, go talk to Jesus for me. Go, go tell him what's going on. And it's curious, though, who he picks. He picks the elders of the Jews. Now, if you read any of the New Testament, you find out there's a whole lot of animosity, animosity between the El- between the Jewish people and the Romans. And yet, this guy has such a relationship with the Jews in that area that he's able to go to the Jewish leaders and send them, and they go willingly, and then they speak well of him. Look what happens when they came to Jesus. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying. This man, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house. And again, the centurion, then he sends friends to him. And he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Well, I think another reason that Jesus isn't amazed with this guy is not because of another person. He's not amazed with him because of someone else. He's not amazed with him because he had gone to the religious leaders and the religious leaders spoke highly of him. He's not amazed with him because his friends went out and and obeyed him and spoke highly of him. He, He wasn't concerned with what other people thought about this man. He was concerned with what he thought about him and Jesus ended up being amazed by him. Are you too concerned with what other people think? Are you too concerned with getting the right people to think rightly of you? Are you too concerned with what I think of you? Are you too concerned with what uh, someone else thinks of you? Do you find your value and your dignity and your worth based on what others think about you? Again, the only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks about you, what God thinks about you. Well, this, Jesus was not amazed due to another person. But yet when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, verse 4, earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. Here's the fourth thing. Jesus isn't impressed with him because of his good works. He's not amazed at him because of his good works. This guy was a really good guy. The Jewish leaders speak highly of him, a Roman official, and they say, He's been really good to us. He loves the Jewish people. He built our synagogue. Do you know what that means? That means out of his pocket, he funded the building of the synagogue. Now, many of you know, we've got a building committee that's going to start meeting here within the next about 10 days to look at some things for our church. And after that, it's going to require us to give and to fund that if, if that's the way the Lord would lead us, right? Now, you've probably heard stories. Maybe you've been a part of churches before where somebody goes, 
They lay it all on the table. I'll pay for that. Put my name on that wall, right? And then people might be impressed by by that person and their big gift. Well, I don't know of I don't I don't know of a church. I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of a church where some guy came and he funded the whole thing, (laughs) and everybody goes, he built it. He built it. So if you if you think you could give or do enough good works to where hey I've got standing before God, hmm? this guy, go, they said he built the whole thing. He funded the whole thing. He was wealthy. Jesus wasn't impressed with his good works, with his generosity. Jesus was not amazed by that. Now was that a good thing? Absolutely, it was, and it blessed tons of people in Capernaum. But it's not what Jesus was impressed with. It's not what amazed him. Well, Jesus went with them after they came to him with the elders. He went, he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends saying to him. Now this is what we need to key in on verses six through eight of what the centurion says through his friends. Lord, he says, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Say the word and let him be healed. You, you just need to speak the word, Jesus. Maybe the centurion knew the other Roman official who Jesus had healed his son over in Luke chapter 4. We preached that passage was message number 24 in this series. And uh, they're on their way back to Capernaum. And this, this guy comes, he says, Jesus... My, my son's dying. You have to come heal him. And long story short, Jesus says, go, he'll be healed. And what's the guy do? He takes Jesus at his word. He goes home. And when he, gets, when he meets his servants on the road, they said that, that his son got well at the very moment. They, t- they figured it out. It was exactly when Jesus said he'll be healed. And you go read about that in Luke chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. He was from Capernaum. I wonder... If this guy knew him, some wonder, if is this that guy? <laughs> is this that guy? He says, I'm not worthy. You just speak the word and he'll be healed. Psalm 107.20 says, he sent out his word and healed them, speaking of Jesus. The centurion had believed him and took Jesus. At, do you take Jesus at his word? When you read what Jesus says in scripture, do you take him at his word? Or do you go, mm, that sounds good sometimes. Or I like part of that. Maybe not all of it. Do you believe what he says? Many people tried to get close to Jesus and touch him so they could be healed. But this man knew Jesus could do it from a distance. He says in verse 8, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And to when I say go, and he goes. To when I say come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This guy clearly seems to know who Jesus is. And there's some parallels here between the centurion and Jesus, right? They're both men who are under authority. Jesus is under the authority of the Father. The centurion's under the authority, ultimately, of the Roman emperor. They both had people underneath them who they had authority over. Jesus, well, he's God. That'd be everybody, right? The centurion had at least 100 men, likely, under him. And they both give directions and send people with authority. And they both seem to be kind and benevolent rulers of the people that they have authority over. The centurion, we, Jesus clearly is. The centurion seems to be. Everyone speaks highly of him. 
But look at Jesus' reaction. This is where we see Jesus' amazement. And the sole reason Jesus was amazed at this man was because of his faith in Jesus Christ. That was the sole thing that amazed him. The sole thing. It begs the question for me, would Jesus be amazed with my faith if he came walking down my street to my house? Would he be amazed with my faith? Do I trust him and take him at his word and do what he says and live like it? When Jesus heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him. He was amazed. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Matthew records some other things that Jesus said. He adds a little bit more of Jesus' commentary at this moment. In Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 10, it says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. But look at what else he says that Matthew records. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there's going to be people from all around the world, from far away from here, who are far away, maybe even right now, from me and from God. But in the last day, they're going to sit at the table and they're going to eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they're going to be a part of the, the big supper and the big celebration that's talked about in Revelation. And they're going to be in heaven. But look what he says. However, the sons of the kingdom will be, many of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In other words, those who are closest to me, those who are closest to knowing the truth, who've heard it over and over and over taught to them, are going to be thrown into the outer darkness. In other words, into hell. In that place, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The thing that Jesus was impressed with by this centurion was his faith. That's what amazed him. And then Jesus, in his, in, his, in his words right after he says that, I found no such faith in Israel like this guy. He explains more of what he's talking about. It's not just his faith to believe that I can heal his, his servant, but it's his faith that I'm God, that I am who I am. Because if, no, if you don't have that faith, here's the reality. You can know all the right things. You can memorize all the right verses. You can go to church your whole life. You can spend your life in church. You can be born in the church, baptized in the church, go to Sunday school in the church, be confirmed in the church. You can give to the church. You can uh, serve in the church. You can work for the church. You can die in the church and have your funeral in the church, but if you're not in Christ, you'll spend eternity in hell. It's a sober warning. Because I don't know about you, but I've spent my whole life in church. And Jesus says that there's some people who spent their whole life there that are going to be thrown into the outer darkness because they'd never had the faith the centurion had. They never recognized Jesus for who he truly was and repented of their sin and trusted him. They just went through the motions and played the game over and over and over and over and over their whole life. See, the things that amazed Jesus about this man is also the thing that saved this man and that saves you and saves me from his wrath. It's faith. It's not any of the other things. 
It's not your position. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm saved. Sad to say, I think there's sadly many pastors who don't know Jesus Christ. That's why you got to be careful when you hear teaching that you confirm it. It's really what God's word says. Now, that said, we're in a church that guards the door to that very closely. And I believe any of the pastors in the free church and in many other denominations similar to ours do love and know Jesus. But be careful. It's not your position. It's not where you rank on the corporate ladder. It's not your pedigree. It's not your last name. Oh, I go to this church. My family went to this church. Do you know who I am? I don't care. Have you trusted Jesus? That's all that matters. It doesn't save you and it doesn't amaze him. It's also not your good works. I don't care how many good things you've done. I don't care how many ministries you've served in, how many small groups you've led, how many times you've been to church. Right? You you know my phrase, going to church doesn't make you a Christian like going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a chalupa. You have to trust Jesus. Your good works don't mean squat. In fact, God says they're like filthy rags. And I'll spare you from what he's really speaking of there in Isaiah. Those filthy rags. He's only amazed and the only thing that saves you is faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Is your faith in Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus? I can't choose for you. I can't. Don't spend your whole lifetime in church and never know who Jesus is. Trust him, believe in him, turn to him. He'll save you. And I left a small definition of faith there at the bottom of your notes from my pastor when I was in college. Um, And it's just stuck with me since then. But faith is believing God's word and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result. It's believing God's word that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for your sin and my sin, that he rose from the grave. And then it's acting upon it. It's putting your faith and your trust in him and him alone for your salvation. Even if it doesn't totally make sense to you. And if people around you make it really hard, it doesn't matter how it feels. God promises a good result if you trust him and put your faith in Jesus. Amen. For those of you who haven't, I commend that to you. For those of you who have, live it out like the centurion did. Let me pray. We'll take our offering, we'll sing, and we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, this man is just such an example to us. He's He's a guy who, by all standards in his culture, was probably not highly religious. He was an outsider in many ways, yet he seemed to know who you were. He had at some point come to have faith in you and trust you and turn to you. And because of that, then his faith was a beacon to all those around. And Jesus, you were even amazed at him. And ultimately it was his faith that saved him. And that that man, I believe clearly will be one of those who are dining at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I pray for each one in this room that we would as well. That for anyone who's never made that choice, that today might be the day that they know that they know that they've trusted you. And they'd repent of their sin. And of trying to achieve your favor in all these other ways and instead simply trust you and put their faith in Jesus. For those of us who have confirmed that in us, 
and allow us to live it out with courage and uh, with joy. Father, we love you. Thanks for Jesus. I pray all this through him. Amen.